Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. If you've ever been the victim of identity theft or, or know someone who has, or if you've ever had a, one of your online accounts hacked, and you know how frustrating it is to have to go through whatever steps are required to get your identity back, to get control back again of those accounts that have been hacked into, to prove that you are the real you, and that whoever it is who was using your identity or who had hacked into account was not you, but just a scammer or a con artist. In a way, God also knows what it's like to have his identity stolen. It's amazing that anyone could mistake God's identity or claim to do what only God is capable of doing. There is only one God. He alone has the right to that name of God. But throughout history, many have denied the existence of God and have credited divine accomplishments to themselves or to gods that they have formed or fashioned, at least in their own minds. Worse yet, their followers have ridiculed and attempted to deceive God's faithful people. And sadly, that deception has often worked. In the words of God's prophet Isaiah, we can sense God's own frustration and anger as he proves his identity and he declares his accomplishments as the one and only God. The lies of any imposters simply cannot change the facts. The Lord is God. He knows it, and he knows that those pretenders also know it. But sometimes we don't know it. And we are the ones that God is most concerned about. The lives of people whom God loves are at stake. And so God is quick to go on the offensive. He wants to expose those false gods for what they are, that they are fraudulent imitators of the one and only God. And so through his prophet Isaiah, the Lord issues a challenge to the false gods. He takes them to court, in a manner of speaking, and he dares them to stand toe-to-toe with him. Isaiah introduces the Lord with an impressive list of credentials in verse 6 of our reading. He says, the Lord is Israel's king and redeemer. He is the Lord of armies, the Lord of heavenly hosts. He is the first and the last. The Lord God of Israel stands above history and creation. His existence is eternal. His power is limitless. These are facts that We, the people of this world who are limited by time and space and ultimately by death, that we can't even begin to comprehend, let alone duplicate. Knowing this to be the case, the Lord steps forward and issues the challenge that we see in verse 7 of our reading. Who is like me? Let him declare it. Let him recite in order for me the things that took place since the time I established an ancient people. Or let them declare what is yet to come and what is going to take place. Who would dare to accept that challenge? Recorded history that human beings are aware of goes back only so far, and then our knowledge beyond that is very limited. 
geologists and biologists, archaeologists, anthropologists, paleontologists, with all their digging and probing and testing, in the end, can only issue guesses. What was the world like when God first created it? What has happened since that time up to the beginning of recorded history? God alone knows. Only he was there. Only his word about it is reliable. More difficult to establish than what happened in the past, however, is what will happen in the future. Who can foretell the future? For centuries, for millennia even, astrologers and fortune tellers have tried to predict the future, both with about as much success as the manufacturers of fortune cookies have in their predictions. Only the Lord God knows what is still to come in the future, because only God has been there and seen it. That may seem like a strange concept to us. If it hasn't happened yet, how could God have been there and seen it? Well, because God exists outside of time. And from that vantage point, he's not only an observer, but he is also the controller and ruler of all of time and history. When he predicts what will take place, he sees to it that it does take place. And such is the nature of all the prophecies that we see in the Bible. Even the words of Isaiah are prophetic in that they spoke most directly to the Jews in captivity in Babylon about 200 years after Isaiah first spoke those words to God's people. It was a comfort to those people in their captivity that the Lord knew already more than 100 years, almost 200 years before that time of their captivity, God knew what would happen. God knew the predicament that his people would be in in their captivity in Babylon. And it was proof to them of God's ability to help them in their captivity. In verse 8 of our reading, God says, Did I not announce this to you and declare it already long ago? God asks as though the prophets of old were being read for the first time in Babylon. In our modern age of technology and information, we are easily tempted to trust only what we can see or know for sure. But the trouble is that what we can see and know for sure is actually very limited. The more we know, the more we realize how little we actually know. As we look back at the past and look ahead to the future, the only thing of which we can be certain, it seems, is the uncertainty of life. Threatening change appears to be in control so often. Many who worship the gods of this age would have us believe that history is determined only by purposeless, random chance and coincidence. Others maintain that the future is in our hands alone to determine. Still others proclaim that some vague spiritual forces are moving us toward higher goals and even ultimately to divinity itself. It's no wonder then that so many people today, including at times ourselves, are frightened. What's to become of us, of our families, and our world? What's to become of God's church? Can God control the power struggles among nations and the high-level manipulations of political leaders? 
Is God really in control of all things, of all of history, and of all current events? Through his prophet Isaiah, God himself assures us that he is. Our God, the one and only God, predicts and then fulfills history. There is comfort and security for us in knowing that. It becomes easier to trust the, insur- the assurance he gave to Israel in captivity. In verse 8 of our reading, do not tremble. Do not be frightened. And in verse 6, God says, except for me, there is no God. No God would dare to claim authority to predict and control history. So the Lord's challenge is met with silence in that divine courtroom. There's another challenge implied in the words of Isaiah. The Lord was challenging the false gods and idols who were vying for his identity, and then they, through their worshipers, must also have been challenging the faith of the people of Israel in that true God. During the time of the prophet Isaiah in the 8th century B.C., the 700s B.C., both the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah had a soft spot in their hearts, a weakness for worshiping the gods, the false gods of the neighboring peoples around them. And later, when they were taken away into captivity in Babylon, the people would be tempted again there to worship the false gods of the Babylonians. And why not follow them? It appeared, after all, that the Lord had forgotten about his people, that he had abandoned them. He had allowed them to fall and to be conquered by this enemy nation. And it seemed to them that except for the words of a handful of prophets, God was silent and not speaking with them. And after all, when you are surrounded by hostile armies, words don't save you. You can be sure that the Babylonians taunted them, saying, what kind of God would let you suffer like this? God would never have bothered to respond to the challenge or issue a challenge of his own if he had not been jealous in his love for his people. As we read between the lines of this section from Isaiah, uh, underneath each harsh dare and challenge from God, the Lord is begging his people to return to him in trust and obedience. In verse 6, again, Isaiah introduces God as Israel's king and redeemer. King and subjects belong together. The king leads and rules for the benefit of his beloved people. The Lord God wants to be identified with his people. The most indicative of God's jealousy for Israel is his desire to be known as their redeemer. In those days, in Old Testament times, a redeemer was someone who would come to the defense of a family member who was in need of of social or legal help for the sake of their family, preserving the, the benefit of the family and those family members The Redeemer would deliver that person from humiliation or from poverty, even if it meant great cost to himself. And the Lord was also a husband and a father to Israel. It was not due to God's weakness or the strength of the Babylonian idols that the people of Israel found themselves in captivity. The people had walked out on God 
and had chased after other gods. But in spite of that, God still loved his people. And through his prophets, God went after them to bring them back. God let his jealousy show by confronting those idols for whom the people had forsaken the one true God, taking them to court and challenging them to establish their identity. And finally, in what is the clearest and greatest demonstration of God's grace to a sinful nation, the Lord redeemed Israel. The Redeemer would be none other than God himself in the person of his son Jesus. At great cost to himself, something the the false gods of this world know nothing about, God would pay for Israel's right to be forgiven. And the cost was his own sinless life. On the cross, the one and only God became the Redeemer not just of a faithless Old Testament nation that he loved, he became the Savior, the one who saves all people of the whole world from all of their sins because he loves all people in the whole world. He alone could and he alone did pay that price of salvation. And it would be 700 years before Jesus would come to accomplish this salvation. But already, the Lord was calling himself Israel's Redeemer, as though the redeeming had already taken place. And in the previous chapter of Isaiah, in chapter 43, God consoles, he comforts his people, saying, do not be afraid, because I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. And to us today, God's children, God wants to be known as our Father. Perhaps no relationship better qualifies someone to be a Redeemer than a Father. God jealously loves and protects us just as he did his Old Testament children of Israel. We belong to God by birth. More than that, we are his because he lovingly paid the price to keep us for eternity. He redeemed us, lost and condemned creatures, with the blood of his Son. As we face uncertain futures in the captivities of this life, our Redeemer speaks tenderly to us. Do not be afraid. You are mine. Is there any God except me? God asks in verse 8. No God would dare to claim to have the love necessary to save sinners. The Lord's challenge is again met with silence. The Lord is the one and only God from eternity, the world's creator and ruler as well as its savior. And the challenge God presents through Isaiah must be answered by us. We are, after all, the new Israel, the bride of Christ, God's beloved people, whose situation is often not all that different from that of our Old Testament counterpart. We also are tempted to run after cheap imitations. We all are God-makers, inventing and creating false gods in our hearts that meet our particular needs. They may be heroic gods, like material success and security, that in our society today is more often innocuously referred to as the American dream. 
Isn't it ironic that our great national motto, in God we trust, appears most often on our money? That which we work for and dream about and believe in and trust in, thinking that if we only had a little more, if we only had enough, then we could be set and relax and have peace and security. We may give God credit for prospering us with victory or some other blessing, but are we so quick to acknowledge him also in defeat and in poverty? And if not, then what God are we really worshiping? Or our idols might be villains, evil gods that we try to avoid, but to whom we turn over our lives and worship, in our hearts at least, nonetheless. We afflict ourselves with fear, worry, doubt, and despair. These things, of course, don't solve our problems, but in the time of trouble, they demand and get our fear, love, and trust above all things. God often appears to us to be out of touch, to be uncaring, unconcerned about the real issues of our lives, We often hear about his love and grace toward us, but in the heat of life and the challenge of the moment, we are so often tempted to ask, where is it, God? Where is your love? Where are you when I need you most? In sickness and in suffering, medicine becomes our idol. In the life of obedience and virtue, carnal pleasures mock us. We are just as good at creating false gods as the ancient polytheists were. By challenging us, God is not simply asking that we philosophically acknowledge his existence, although that's a good start. He certainly wants us to know that he is the one and only God. But most of all, he wants a personal relationship with us. He loves us. And he wants us to trust that love and to love him in return. And why shouldn't we? After all, we are witnesses in the courtroom. We have seen the Lord's almighty power working throughout his creation. We have benefited from his daily care and protection, receiving from his gracious hand all that we need for body and life. In the Bible, God's word, we have witnessed his ability to prophesy and then to fulfill, to promise and to keep his promises. But the greatest proof of all is that, as the Apostle John wrote in chapter 1 of his gospel, we have seen his glory, the glory he has as the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. In Jesus We have witnessed the love of a jealous God for us. We have heard and seen the extent to which our Redeemer would go in order to have us with him for eternal life in heaven. We've experienced the release, the the freedom from captivity to sin. We know what it feels like to be free to love and to serve the one who saved us. In the trials of this life, when it seems that God is silent, causing us perhaps to wonder whether he even exists, when the gods of this world and their worshipers surround us and ridicule us for our allegiance to the true God, enticing us with their temporal solutions, when Satan himself and his evil empire seem to be in control, then the words of the Lord 
through the prophet Isaiah challenge us to let the one and only God of the universe be the God of our lives. Again today, he declares his love for us and his faithfulness to us. Just as husbands and wives freely give themselves to each other in love on their wedding day, so the Lord wants to be united with us in an exclusive relationship of love. We are the one and only world of sinners to whom God has bound himself in a covenant of grace. And now he desperately wants to be our one and only God. No one else has done for us what God has done. What imposter can compare with the Lord? What heart, having been loved in this way by the Lord, can refuse such affection? The divine courtroom is silent. The Lord's challenge is directed at you and me. He asks, is there any God except me? And in words that he himself provides for us, may we break that silence and answer full of trust, no, there is no other rock. I am not aware of any other. Amen.